Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks this day for the chance to worship you and to gather with one another in worship. We ask your blessing on our hearing of your word and our understanding of it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you've ever been asked to give life advice by someone, or, or whether you've been the one to ask someone else for advice. And these requests can take various shapes, right? It can happen in various ways. But then also sometimes that advice, that life advice, can come without the request. You know the situation, right, where someone offers some advice based on probably their own experience, maybe their own regrets even, their own conclusions, perhaps even observations about, about your life. So, you know, this can happen, I, I've been thinking about it recently leading up to a friend's wedding where he asked others for their thoughts about marriage, especially uh, people he knew who had been married for a long time. Sometimes this happens at a graduation or some other life transition, advice giving. And sometimes we welcome the advice, other times we might reject it or even ignore it, or my favorite, when we do the opposite of the advice, maybe even just because we didn't want to hear it in the first place, right? I think I've been in each of these spots at various times in my life when I've received advice and when giving it as well. And, and I think particularly it depends on who is giving the advice, Indeed, sometimes the giver of the advice matters more than the advice itself. And the best advice, the most trusted or listened to advice, comes from the people we care about, the people we trust, the people we respect. It comes from relationship that's been formed. I remember actually the week before I was leaving to move here, a mentor of mine took me out to coffee and he generously offered me advice as I was about to start here at PCWS. This was a man who I hadn't known for very long but was always very supportive of me throughout seminary and he expressed a genuine interest along the way about my progress, about what I was learning, about my my call to ministry. He had been a business executive his whole career And his most recent job at that time uh, had been to become the CEO of a company that had been acquired by his employer. And so he he was sent in, not unlike a pastor coming into a church, he was joining a group of people that had already been working together. And he was in that moment when he came in, the outsider. And his advice stayed with me. He said, When you come into a new place, and especially when you come in in a leadership role, you're only going to be an outsider for a brief moment. And he said, take advantage of it. And I thought this was surprising because I find that personally when I'm an outsider, I'm so focused on wanting to become comfortable that the idea, the idea of enjoying or taking advantage of the discomfort was something quite foreign to me at the moment. And he explained it a little bit more. He says, look around you in your new environment with fresh eyes. And he said, take notice of the things that stand out to you. He said, because those things will stop standing out to you. You'll get comfortable quickly, he said, and the details will fade. Now, he was in that context specifically talking about challenges or problems 
But his advice was extremely helpful to me because it also applies to so many other things in life, including the strengths, the blessings, the good things of life. So after receiving that good advice, I've periodically gone back to this this friend to seek other advice. And one other time he said to me, be sure to enjoy yourself. Actually, he asked it first as a question. He said, are you enjoying yourself? And he continued, we forget sometimes, he said, that it's okay, and and more than okay, it's important to enjoy ourselves, and we have to find our work and our experiences that bring us satisfaction. Now, again, this is pretty obvious, as advice often is, right? It's pretty obvious, but it was a helpful piece of advice that I continue to try and live by and try and live with in my life and in my vocation. In our text this morning that Amy read for us, the writer to the Ephesians is giving advice to this new church. He's a trusted friend, a trusted writer, Someone who has given them advice along the way and here is giving this advice, advice that sounds a lot like the advice I received from my mentor and advice that many of you have heard or experienced in your life. I want to back up, though, for a moment. So the past several weeks, we've been looking at excerpts from this letter, this letter to the Ephesians, a letter likely written by someone very close to the Apostle Paul, trying to follow a pattern of writing that the Apostle Paul was using to these early churches. It was a letter that was likely intended for this small new church in Ephesus, but it was also written in a different style, in a different way. It was written clearly intended to be read aloud to other churches as well. It was written not only to that specific audience. And I appreciate this personally because as we study a text like this, it is amazing to me how thousands of years later, the text still applies to us and how we live in our community. We can apply it to our lives, especially our lives today in an often confusing world in which we live. And as a reminder, the first part of the letter to the Ephesians was, was about this question of, of who God is and why does God matter? What does Christ matter? What are the fundamentals of Christian belief? I've referred to those first chapters as the theology section of this letter, this foundation of who the church is and what the church is called to be, foundation on the theology. They lay the foundation for the next sections, which focused more on how we live, how we live in community, how we live in community as a church, but also how we, how you and I live individually. And the writer is guiding us to live in a way that more closely aligns us with God and helps us to be receptive and open to the Holy Spirit so the Holy Spirit can dwell within us and and we can live in a way that reflects the Holy Spirit to the world. In many ways, when we look at the lessons in the book of Ephesians, they can help us and guide us to live a more ethical and moral life. But even more than that, Even more than that, they can help us to live in response to Jesus and help us be more centered on God and receptive to God's movement in our lives. I wonder if you've noticed in these texts that we've heard from Ephesians that there's a bit of urgency. There's a bit of urgency in the writing because the writer is looking around at the world. The writer is seeing what's going on all around him. 
And there was this belief at the time, and especially among early Christians in, those, in that first century, there was a belief that there was an immediacy to really the end of the world, the second coming of Christ, when, when all of the prophetic word of Scripture was going to come uh, to a head. And they felt it was going to happen at any time. Now, what's, what's unclear or hard to understand was whether, well, where they got that impression. Part of it comes from the words of Jesus. Part of it came from a longing or a hopefulness because there was an excitement about what that would bring, what it would look like. And so they began writing in a way that, that expressed that urgency and immediacy, the a sense of, of hurry up, hurry up. Don't waste your time. And 2,000 years later, and all along the way, we've continued to maintain this sense in the church. It's a, it's, a, it's a living, a longing, an expectation for what God is going to do in the future. You see, the writer knows the evils of the day, and those are his words. The writer knows the threats to the church the threats to that new church. He's, he's writing from prison. He's writing from prison because he's a church leader, and, and the church, as a church leader, he was imprisoned for trying to spread the gospel. And the writer knows that the pressures of the world, the evils of the world, can overtake us. Friends, we don't have to look very hard at the world around us to see the evils of our day. We don't have to look hard to see the things that threaten our joy. I had a sudden reminder of this this week, actually. Those of you who use Facebook at all know that many people list their birthdays, sort of like in our weekly connection, and, and Facebook reminds you of whose birthdays are coming up. And you can, uh, it's, it's become a bit of a tradition of people offering a word of greeting to others on Facebook on their birthday. And on your birthday, it can be quite overwhelming uh, and a little bit wonderful, but also kind of random, I I know for me at least, uh, as you might hear from someone you haven't heard from in decades, or even more likely since your last birthday a a year prior. And I'll admit, I don't get wrapped up in this very much. I actually don't do a very good job of, of going and, and undertaking the effort to go make posts for people on their, on their birthday. But this week, there was a day, this past week, where there were a lot of birthdays. There were like, I had like a dozen or more people on one day who had their birthdays. And so I thought, well, I'll look at them because I want to see, are there you know, is there something in common among these people? You kind of wonder about that, right? So I'm looking at the list, and I saw the name of a high school classmate, someone with whom I'd probably had contact with two or three times in the last 25 years. I decided to go to his page, for whatever reason, and wish him a happy birthday. And I I also thought I'll send him a private note, too, to try to connect. The last time we had talked was at least 10 years earlier. And I saw that a few people had posted little happy birthday wishes But when I scanned through the messages just a little bit more, I I realized that he had died a couple weeks earlier. And it was very awkward because there were all these posts, right? Happy birthday, happy birthday. And then all of a sudden I see this post. And there were no details, just a vague post from another friend about it. 
And I knew that this friend had struggled with mental health issues and addiction since the time we were in high school. I knew from my last conversation with him, again, more than 10 years ago, that he carried much pain in his life. And I don't know the circumstances at all of his death, but I do know that for him, the weight of the world and the realities of his struggle were immense, and they absolutely played a role in his death. I've thought a lot about so many people I've known and loved who have silently suffered from mental health issues, and I know that many of you have as well. I've thought about those, like many of you, who have watched helplessly alongside them. Friends, I say it again, we don't have to look very hard to see pain in our world. We don't have to look beyond our newspaper front page or drift far from the memories of this past year or even this past month with, um, with, with deaths in Florida, deaths downtown. All around us, we see this. We see this when we hear of, of senseless loss. The days are, are evil. The writer of this letter uses those strange words, mysterious words, and they, they're very mysterious to me. Actually, I, I don't often look at a lot of biblical commentaries, but this, this last week I looked at a lot of them. I, I went and looked at several, and nearly every commentator I read, as I tried to find helpful thoughts on this phrase because it stuck out at me so much, nearly all of them gloss right over the phrase, these days are evil. The days are evil. The phrase, it turns out, is borrowed from the Jewish tradition. The, the phrase is borrowed from the Jewish tradition, which recognizes that in the world, there's both good and evil. There's light and darkness. Other traditions have acknowledged this as well quite a bit. There's this sense of, of, of sin that's in our midst, in our world, with these forces that, that seek to distract us from God. But the phrasing that he uses in this letter, the days are evil, it's a strong declaration that no matter how much we try, no matter how much we try to wish away the things of the world that cause pain and suffering, the things that cause fear, no matter how much we want to ignore them or avoid them, or protect ourselves, or even more so, protect the ones we love from them, they are a part of our earthly existence. But also, a part of our existence, a part of our existence as ones created in the image of God, as ones who are children of God, part of our existence is the invitation the invitation, the encouragement that these evil days are no match for Christ. That Christ who overcame death, the Christ who conquered evil, the Christ who conquered evil in the form of a Roman cross of crowds and a government set out to kill him. That Christ who was buried in a tomb sealed with a stone that could not keep him in. That Christ assures us, even you and me, that Christ assures us of a good future, a future for which we are invited by the writer of Ephesians to give thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of Jesus Christ.
we're invited to give thanks at all times and for everything. But for what? For, for what are we giving thanks? For what are you giving thanks when in your life it may seem that the evil around you is winning? You know, giving thanks at all times can, can sometimes even feel or seem blind to the world around us. It can, it can feel blind to the world, to the pain of the world, when we give thanks in the midst of loss, pain, and suffering. But my friends, when we look at this text a little more closely, when we, when we look at this encouragement, this invitation a little more closely, it isn't an invitation to blindly smile and thank God in denial of the terrible realities of the world. No, not at all. It's an invitation to live in a way that in the midst of all that we experience and all that we see, to live in a way that looks towards God's good future. Looking toward God's good future. It's an invitation into a pattern that recognizes sorrow and loss, but also with hope comes before God, confident of a future that is beyond whatever present misery we might be experiencing. The hope for God's making good on God's promises. That's the ultimate hope that there is. God's making good on God's promises. We look around the world, and in the midst of all that we see, we also give thanks that God promises us a future where the poor and the hungry are made full, and the sorrowful will have their tears wiped away, and, and where those who experience loss or who are longing will experience new life. And then, friends, we bear this reminder, we bring, we carry this reminder, this, this invitation to one another. And this is what we do when we worship. This is why we are a church. This is what we do when we gather, even when we laugh and play with one another and enjoy the company of one another, but especially when we worship. Worship is at the center of our being, in part because it returns us to these promises of God. It takes us into a sanctuary, a place of, of safety, a place where we approach God and we can remind one another of God's promises for us. We sing songs of praise, hymns. We share prayers of longing. We dare to bring ourselves and our vulnerabilities to one another and to God, because worshiping God, friends, ever so mysteriously reminds us that God intends for us something greater than our imagination can ever perceive. This prayer by theologian Walter Brueggemann is entitled, We Will Not Keep Silent. We are people who must sing you for the sake of our very lives. You are a God who must be sung by us for the sake of your majesty and honor. And so we thank you for the lyrics that push us past our reasons, for melodies that break open our givens, 
for cadences that locate us at home beyond all our safe places, for tones and tunes that open our lives beyond control. We thank you for the long parade of mothers and fathers who have sung you deep and true. We thank you for the good company of artists, poets, musicians, cantors, and instruments that sing for us and with us toward you. We are witnesses to your mercy and splendor. We will not keep silent ever again. Amen. Be careful. Be careful how you live, the writer to the Ephesians reminds us. Not as unwise people. I love that phrase, by the way. It gets translated fools sometimes, and I think they tried to soften the language, not as fools, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. Don't be distracted, the writer says. Don't be drunk. I know many of you have been waiting like the whole sermon for me to talk about that because it said in there, don't drink and don't get drunk. Don't be drunk. Don't be drunk, and don't numb yourself to the world, really. That's what he's saying. Don't numb yourself to the world. Don't, don't pull yourself away so far from the pain of the world to try to pretend it's not there. Don't try to ignore the pain and be spiritually drunk. Don't run from God. But instead, stay focused. Live as a child of the light in the midst of a world of darkness. Remain centered. Come before God in worship, seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you might be focused more keenly always on the hope that we find in Christ. Hope in Christ and in all of it, always seeking to give thanks to God for God's goodness, for God's promises, so that, so that as you live in the world, as you face and see your own pain and the pain and the difficulty of the world, you will do so standing tall with confidence in God, with confidence in God and in God's promises. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.